If you have your Bibles, turn them to Exodus chapter 6, and we're going to read a passage of Scripture from one of the most noticeable, if not the most recognizable, story in all of Scripture, and that is where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Now that's in chapter 3, we'll talk a little bit about chapter 3, but it actually starts uh, there in 3, but it goes on for quite some time. There's this long and very interesting, very dramatic dialogue between God and and, and this shepherd, Moses, through the medium of this bush that is burning. And in verse uh, in in chapter six, we're going to read uh, this last part before he sends Moses off to do his. Well, he's already sent him off once, and he's had some problems. But uh, uh, let's read it together. You listen. Uh, you can also read it in your text. Unlike Revelation, if you want to follow along, I urge you to do that. It's in your bulletin, or you can read it in your Bible. But we're going to start with verse one, just the first nine verses. So now hear God's word. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh with a strong hand. He himself will send you out. With a strong hand he will drive the people out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be My people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is the Word of the Lord. You know, Christmas uh, is a great time of year uh, for most people. Some people, not so great. But every year, uh, I know you have traditions. I have my own. Our family has our own traditions. And one of the things I like to do is watch a particular movie. And that movie is uh, the classic Frank Capra film, It's a Wonderful Life, with Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. And and, uh, you all, most of you know the story, and if you haven't watched it, you need to go ahead and watch it. It's free on Amazon. They have actually have a colorized version, which I found to be much better uh, than the black and white version. And I hope that you will take time to, re- uh, to uh, watch this film. The film is about George Bailey, this man in a small town, Bedford uh, Falls, and... Uh, 
He is just an all-around good guy. And throughout the story, he has big dreams. He wants to be an architect. He wants to build things. But if you know the story, providences from God or whatever, the universe, we're not really sure. But these things happen to where every one of his dreams slowly, slowly gets shattered. And for the sake of others, and on behalf of others, George Bailey sets his dreams aside for his father, for his brother, for his mother, for the town floozy, for anybody and everybody that needs help. This man steps in and gives his life through his savings and loan company. He helps people build homes. But life catches up with George Bailey. And at the end, he has another failure, another setback, another pain enters his life. And he can't take it and he goes and you know the scene, he's standing on the bridge and he's crying out. It's emotional, even though it's a comedy. He's calling out to God, help me. And an angel appears, Clarence. The angel. The movie is worth watching just for Clarence. The angel. Anyway... Clarence comes down and shows George Bailey what the world would be like without George Bailey's redemption. Without George Bailey spending his life for others, redeeming others, redeeming their lives through his acts of love and kindness. And at the end, George Bailey himself needs redemption. And so, I would say, God redeems him. You know, these stories of redemption are just throughout our culture. You can hardly think of a story, a book, a movie, film, art. Everything seems to have this theme of redemption running through it. It's very popular in our culture. I mean, look at the books like Les Miserables. I started reading it when I was diagnosed with cancer in 2015. It was going to be a bad one, and I knew I had a hard road ahead. So to punish myself even further, <laughs> I got Victor Hugo's book out, and I started reading it. And I just, I mean, it, it is an amazing story. I'm still reading it, by the way. God help me for, after three years. But I, anyway, I... I broke down, I got the film with Hugh Jackman and, and Anne Hathaway, and I watched that, and I, I got to tell you, that was, you know, they should have shown it to Victor Hugo before he wrote the book, he wouldn't have bothered, you know. But anyway, Les Mis, a story of redemption. Lord of the Rings, those of you that are Tolkien, I started reading Tolkien 35 years ago. My brother and I used to read it every year and talk about it. Completely a story of redemption. Those of you that are Trekkies, Star Trek, Wrath of Khan, the greatest redemption movie of the Star Trek series. Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, I could go on and on and on. You know the stories. Every one of them has a redemptive theme. And theologian Fleming Rutledge, she's one of the most amazing theologians I've ever read. She's changed my whole view of women being pastors. I want her to be my pastor, I can tell you. Fleming Rutledge, she's amazing, written this amazing book. I don't recommend it because it will revolutionize your life. And most of you won't be able to stand it. It is a great book, The Crucifixion. But it's heavy reading. But listen to this. She says, Redemption 
in fact, is arguably one of the more popular topics in our culture because it lends itself to sentimental resolutions that imply that it is readily available and not particularly costly. And what she's getting at, what she's saying is redemption is a theme that is just shot through every part of our lives because we know we need redemption. We know we need to fix things that are messed up. And we believe that we can actually do that. We believe that we can pay the cost. That it is possible to redeem a situation or our lives, even our own lives. As Jean Valjean does in Les Mis, he he makes it his life's mission to redeem the bad that he had done. Where does these stories come from? Well, folks, your Bible is a story of redemption. The theme, the grand theme, write this down somewhere. In the front of your Bible, maybe. The Bible is the story. It's very simple. Chaos, or creation. Paradise. Then chaos... And then recreation, redemption. Creation, chaos, recreation. That's the grand narrative of our Bible and why our culture is just shot through with these stories of redemption. And one of the greatest is right here in our Bible in Exodus. The Catechism, our Westminster Shorter Catechism, asks this question. Did God leave mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Did He leave them? And the answer is no. The answer is no. The divines said this, God out of His mere good Pleasure, that means grace, out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, entering into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery. To bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Somebody from the outside who would come inside and would pay the price. We think we can pay it, but you can't. It's too costly. You don't have the currency and you don't have enough of it. But God did and God does and He comes from above down to the earth and He makes that Redemptive payment for us. And so this morning, we'll look very quickly at this text. It also is shot through with the theme of redemption. And we'll look on three heads, your outline for today if you keep notes. First, we're going to look at autonomy. The illusion of freedom. You see, people, people believe they're free. And we're not free. And my job is to tell you what it is that's got you. What's holding you. Autonomy. Secondly, slavery. What is slavery? What's going on with that? And finally, the only Redeemer of God's elect. Autonomy. Autonomy, folks, 
is an illusion. We think we are free. You know, when you walked in here this morning, most of you decided, where am I going to sit? Somebody is in my chair. (laughs) And so a choice has to be made because somebody made a choice before you and got into your chair. All right. Are you free to make that choice? Of Of course you are. And so there's this this experiential reality that we all understand that we are free people. We can make choices. And so autonomy is constantly pressing up against our minds. But what is autonomy? What does that really mean? And if you look it up, I mean, I had to look it up. It comes from the Greek word, autonomia. It means freedom to live by one's own laws, to determine one's own actions. Listen. To determine one's own actions according to one's own preferences. Absolute and complete independence. That you are autonomous means that we live with the idea that we are just choosing just willy-nilly with nothing going on up here. R.C. Sproul, the theologian that I love and who I studied under at RTS, says this in his little book, Will to Believe. Scripture, the Bible, knows nothing of an autonomous existence. He said it is not possible. We were made by God for God. And from the very beginning of Scripture, God asserts His mastery over everything that is made. And He puts restrictions on human beings. And as Herman pointed out a few weeks ago brilliantly in Sunday school, those of you that were there know brilliant, not only did he say no to one thing, he said yes to a number of other things. God asserts His sovereignty. He said, eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and you will die. Now they didn't die. They kept living. But they were no longer free. Make no mistake, folks. There is not a free human being on this planet. Never has been. Never will be. We all have something at work in us. The divines, the reformers, even the ancient church, everybody knew it was there. They named it different things. They named it original sin. They called it pollution. They called it corruption. They called it all kinds of things. Call it what you want. But we all know something's got us. And yes, we make choices. Yes, we make choices freely. But don't any of you leave this church today thinking that your choices are freely made. Because they're not. Something is influencing you. Something is there present. This illusion of freedom that we think is autonomy, that we think we're autonomous, this illusion leads us 
led our ancestors, has led the human race, the illusion of sovereignty in ourselves, autonomy, has led us to sin. And sin has taken us one place and one place only. Slavery. The wilderness. We were thrown out of Eden into the east. The east becomes an, uh, 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 an emblem, emblematic of our slavery. We were captives in Egypt. Becomes emblematic of our slavery. Later, it wasn't Egypt anymore. It was Babylon. It became emblematic of our slavery. The Apostle Paul warns the church in Romans 6, do you not know? Listen, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone or anything for that matter, as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one you obey. Listen, either of sin, which will lead you to death, which I just said, or of obedience, which will lead you to righteousness, which is life. Peter said, the Apostle Peter, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And even in Proverbs, the iniquity of the wicked ensnare him, he is held fast. Listen. In his cords of sin. In other words, sin will take you mercilessly and will bind you hand and foot to where you think you'll actually think you're free. But you are bound in chains, enslaved. And we know it. And we spend our lives... You know the story of humanity is mankind trying to fix it. You know what the first thing... This is how brilliant we are as human beings. You want to know how smart we are? We want to fix that problem. And you know what the first thing we used to fix that problem? It's how smart we are. We sewed fig leaves together. That's how brilliant we are. I know what I'll do. I'll go get fig leaves. Now that's pretty funny. Nobody's laughing. I don't know why. <laughs> to me, I think, like, oh, that's hilarious. You're going to go out and get some fig leaves? You're going to cover your sin with that? Really? And listen, our original parents were brilliant. They're smarter than we are. We try to cover our sin with everything imaginable. I know what I'll do. I'll get a great job and I'll make lots of money. That will satisfy my heart. I know what I'll do. I'll give up all my money and I'll put on burlap and go live in a cave. That will cure my problem. You, you know where I'm going with this, right? Everything from one extreme to the other. And we know they don't satisfy. I know I'll have a perfect family. I know I'll get a great job. I know I'll get a great, the right degree. I know I'll cut my hair. I know I'll grow my hair out. What, what is wrong with us? We are slaves. Something is working at our heart all the time. Do we have free will? Say yes. 
Yes, we have free will. Yes! John Calvin did never taught we did not have free will. The bigger question, the real question is, is your will free? The answer is no. Do you have free will? Oh yeah. Make choice. Choose whatever you want. But don't think you chose that chair that you're sitting in right now with nothing working on your choice. And great minds, greater minds than mine, theologians have said this forever, so make no mistake. We are slaves. Humanity, listen, humanity had freedom. We had it. We were given freedom in the garden. Free, you're free, live free, not anywhere, paradise. And again, Dr. Sproul says that's the one question we may never ever understand. Why? Why do we choose? Why did our parents choose and why do we choose? The choices we make. Why did we ever decide to choose other than God? We had freedom under the rule and reign of God, but, listen, we used our freedom to go against God, and as a result, this is how it works, as a result, we lost our freedom. Now, even our choices, which we freely make, are not free, but under constraint, enslaved to self, enslaved to sin, and not to God. Does that mean you can't choose good things? No, we choose good things every day. But some part of every choice we make, even the good ones, even the self-sacrifice, even the choices George Bailey made in Bedford Falls for his family, eventually the fuel in this wonderful man, this wonderful Frank Capra character, the, the, it, it ran out. He was running on fumes and he finally cracked. And let me tell you folks, that is a story. If it's not the story of your life, it will be. I pray God has mercy on you, but it is a story. If we've started bringing you up here and telling your testimony, every one of you would say, I came to this point where I hit a brick wall. Yes? I came to this point of self-knowledge that I was not okay. I came to this point that I knew I needed redemption. And simply, sometimes in utter and complete desperation, we cry out to God like the man at the back of the temple, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all you can say. That's all you know. That's all you have left in you. God, have mercy. And you know what He does? 100% of the time, what does He do? 100%. 100%. Yes. 100% of the time. One of the few 100% things you can count on in this life, or that life, or any other life, is that when you call out to God for mercy, He says, yes. No qualifications, no conditions. Unconditional grace. Better than unconditional. There is a condition. And that is that you call out for mercy and Jesus Christ says yes to you. Unbelievable. Slavery. Look at the language in 5 and 6. Look at it. Groanings, burdens, slavery. You know, these are just 
sort of the, the summary of a whole constellation of terms. I love this passage of Scripture in, in Exodus, starting in chapter 3 with Moses seeing the burning bush. It is absolutely pure genius. If you will go, I beg you, take some time. This, you know, you're doing Advent readings with your family. Read one time. Take your family, gather them around, and read these first three, four chapters uh, of Genesis. Uh, actually, the first seven chapters of Genesis. Just read up to where the, the, the plagues start. Don't read the plagues for Christmas. That's a downer. But read up to that. Look at the dialogue. It's a whole constellation of terms. I looked them all up, every one of them. And I looked them up in English, and I looked them up in Hebrew, and I even went and looked them up in Greek in the Septuagint. I wanted to see what... I wanted to see the full magnitude of these constellation of terms that, that God actually says to Moses. And He uses words like misery, suffering, oppression, affliction, distress, helplessness, poverty, pressure, trouble, forced labor, compulsory service, pain, both physical and emotional, sorrow, grief. Let me ask you, where in the world, where in any literature do you read something like this where God in a few moments says to human beings, I understand and then he rolls out a vocabulary. Oh, it's almost exhaustive. You can hardly think of a word that he left out. And I've seen it, he says. I've seen it. And I've, I've, I've come down. He gives us the best, most exhaustive description of life outside the garden, east of Eden what we call the wilderness, Egypt, Babylon, outside from underneath God's control, autonomy, slavery, that's the definition. Misery, suffering, oppression. Slavery doesn't take you anywhere good. Why do we keep fooling ourselves and think, well, if I get this thing, if this person, if, if I just get this person to marry me, if I just get this job, if I just, get, if I just move from El Paso and can go live in this place. Right? No, you stay here. This is where God wants you. I'm just telling you. I know what God's will is for your life, and it is to stay here and help us. Yeah, but you haven't seen Savannah, Georgia. I know, but I've heard it's really great, but all right. You know, or Orlando. I lived in Orlando for six. I mean, where, what's not to like about Orlando? I mean, it's Disneyland. Everything great is there. I tried to stay there. Guess where I ended up? No, listen, El Paso is a great place. It is the place where you can truly be close to God. And let me tell you something, and I'm serious now. If Jesus Christ, our Savior, walked in here right now, and we brought out a map, we unfolded a map of the world, and we said, Jesus, where would you like to live? And His finger went like this. And it went like this on that map. 
and finally settled. Where do you think it would be? I dare you. I dare you to read your Bible. He had a choice. And so guess where he went? Nazareth. The worst, the worst place on earth. That was the worst place. Next to it was El Paso. Uh, you know I'm kidding. I love El Paso. I got to tell you. I, I and so my hometown is born here, and so I want y'all to stay here. But he got to choose, and he chose Nazareth. And if you have a choice to make, you choose, but choose wisely, like that other story of redemption, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, but the other one about the lost Holy Grail. Let's finish. Look. Autonomy is an illusion. Slavery, folks, is a reality. There's a taskmaster. Nothing good, nothing redeeming about slavery. It's miserable. And God saw the misery of His people and He comes down. And in redemption, verse 6, He answers every single question for the past, the present people, those people in Exodus 6. And for all eternity, He answers the question. And He does it three ways. Listen, look at it. I'll show it to you. It's amazing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. He shows us that redemption will take us from something to something and for something. Let me give them to you quickly. First of all, verse 6. I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. And then He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. This word, redeem, is just all through your Bible. There's so many I couldn't count them all. It's the Hebrew word. Some of you have heard it as go'al or ga'al. However they've pointed the vowels, we're not sure. The Greek word is lutron. It's very, very familiar, very well-known terms. And it means, it's a term that is borrowed from family law. And it's this idea of a kinsman redeemer. I'm sure some of you have heard this. You know the story of Boaz and Ruth? Boaz acted as her goel, her redeemer. He redeemed this family, Naomi and Ruth, from poverty and slavery. It's a grand story of redemption. Many of you know the story of Boaz and Ruth, well, that's the word. It's a term borrowed not from the courts necessarily, but from, it's not like justification, forensic justification, which in theology we borrow from, from the courts, those of you that are lawyers or know the law. But it means to come in and save someone who is related to you. In other words, you either marry them or you buy their property, or in the case of, of Boaz, he, you know, he throws his cloak over. Ruth, and anyway, I could tell you that story, but I hope you all know enough about it. You assume, what you do is you take on their liabilities. Listen carefully, this word means you take on their liabilities. It also means you get whatever they have. You take on their liabilities. It also means you'll pay their debts. 
And that's what it means. These words, redemption means you will come in and you will sacrifice yourself for them. You'll get their liabilities. You get, if they have something, you'll, you'll get that. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. It's freedom from that. In other words, somebody comes and rescues. They take up that debt. But it's also freedom to something. If you don't get this part of the gospel, folks, you only have half a gospel. If you only think you've been, if you only think, well, I've been saved from my sin, that's good. Now I've got to live a perfect life, and you should, and you I'm not telling you you shouldn't. But if that's all the gospel is, and you only get saved, and there's nothing beyond that, then that's only half the story. But that's not what Exodus 6 tells us. Look at verse 7 and 8. What have you been freed from? Slavery. What are you freed to? Look at this. Amazing. Verse 7 and 8. I will take you. This is the grand story of redemption in Exodus that becomes the paradigm, if you will, the paradigm for every single other act of redemption. You read throughout the Old Testament, they're constantly talking about the Exodus. And you go, what is up with that? Why do they keep referring to that story? They even talk about Babylon hundreds of years later as the Exodus. Amazing. Exodus becomes their word for redemption. I will take you out of Egypt into the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not going to just take you out from, from Egypt, open the prison doors and say, go, be free, go enjoy, do whatever. No, no, no. I'm taking you into the land. And the land was symbolomatic, emblematic, metaphorical, whatever you want to call it. The land meant freedom for them. The land meant the place that they could be protected. The place that God occupied. The temple was there. Mount Zion was there. Sinai was in another part. They don't want to go back to Sinai because that's where the fire was and the, the shaking and the lightning. Ah, we don't want to go to Sinai. The writer of Hebrews says, you've not come to Sinai. The writer of Hebrews said, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to Mount Moriah. That's where they built it. It was Mount Moriah, the mountain that it that Abraham sacrificed Isaac on. Another sermon. I'm taking you from slavery, but I'm taking you to something. I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be mine. And that's the third part of redemption. The third key. He takes us from slavery to the land, but not just turn us loose then in the land. No, there's more. See, it gets even better. We were created for relationship. Let's put it all together. Look at, look at the whole passage, starting with one all the way down. The Lord said to Moses, this is carefully, I'm going to read it to you, I'm going to throw some, some terms in there that I hope will, will just grab you. Listen. The Lord said to Moses, now you'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. I am the Lord. Listen. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty. Here's what he said. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. That's my name, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh. 
I did not make myself known to them. Then he repeats it, Yahweh, I will bring you out from the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. What for? I, listen, he uses the personal pronoun I or my or whatever 24 times. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You'll know I'm your God who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into a land I swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob for a possession. Yahweh! I am the Lord. And that word, Yahweh, Yahweh, what Jehovah, whatever you want to pronounce, we don't know how it was pronounced. That's why they quit pronouncing it. They made it illegal to pronounce that name because it was so holy, so exalted, so glorious that they just wouldn't say it. And so in your English Bible, look, it says Lord, L-O-R-D in small caps. Three times he repeats it, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And he repeats the word Lord throughout the, 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 the text. Yahweh gave Himself as the agent of our redemption. Why? Why? Not just to deliver us from slavery. Not just to bring us into freedom. As great as those are. Listen to me, Christ the King. He brought you so that He could love you and be your Father forever for relationship. Listen to what Dr. Rutledge says again. He has not He has not stood back and pulled the levers. He stepped into the situation himself personally. Personally. Chapter or question 21 of the Westminster Confession chapter Question 20 was the one I read you before about did God leave us in a state of misery? Here's 21. Here's the answer. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Listen. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal Son of God. This is Christmas if you want to know. Who became, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. How do you know? How in the world are you sure? How do you know without a doubt that Jesus is this one who came down, took on flesh, born in Nazareth? To be here for you as you. To give Himself on a cross. How do we know that absolutely without a question? 
in perhaps the greatest dialogue, apart from Exodus 3, you find in John chapter 6, 7, and 8. And I hope you read that over the holidays as well. Let me finish with this and listen carefully. Jesus is in a long dialogue with the Pharisees, debating over their identity and His, over what the, the true nature of freedom and slavery really is. And Jesus has told them, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they come back with this amazingly illogical statement, we have never been enslaved to anybody, never mind the Egyptians, never mind the Babylonians and Assyrians, never mind the Romans who were just right outside the door, never mind all that, but these crazy religious people said, eh, we've never been enslaved to anybody. And Jesus said this. Listen, this is brilliant, folks. I tell you the truth. If anyone obeys my teaching, he will never die. And the people said to him, Now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets die, but you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. You can hear the cynicism dripping from their mouth. Who do you think you are? (laughs) They asked Jesus, who do you think you are? And you know what? He answers them. He tells them, I know exactly who I am. If I want to glorify myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say He is our God, but you don't even know Him. I know Him. If I said otherwise, I would become as great a liar as you. But I do know Him and I obey Him. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the people said to him, You aren't even 50 years old. How can you say... You've seen, Abraham has seen your day. You're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said this, Amen, 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 Amen. Before Abraham was, Yahovah. Ego eimi. I am that I am. And they took up stones. You wonder why did they take up stones? They took up stones to kill him. Where did Abraham see Jesus? He saw him on that Mount Moriah. Isaac didn't get killed. A ram appeared instead. And let me tell you something. The rabbis debated this for hundreds of years afterwards. They said, why a ram? When going up to the mountain, Abraham told Isaac, God will will 
prepare for himself, will provide for himself a lamb. He uses the word lamb, but instead a ram. So the rabbis in usual uh, way would, would, would just talk about it and debate and debate where was the lamb. Either ram showed up. We don't know where the lamb is. Where's the ram? Where's the lamb? There was a ram. See? And a crazy prophet dressed in camel skin said, Behold the Lamb of God. You've been asking? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who redeemed us from destruction. Who crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercy. Who heals all of our diseases. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Will you trust Him? I sure hope you will. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Save us. Have mercy on us. Redeem our life from destruction. We know. We know there are things that are enslaving us. Every one of us has faced those things. Some of them are huge. Some of them are real addictions. Others are just these nagging failures and insecurities and we know we're just not quite measuring up and we don't know what to do about it. Please help us. I pray that You will bring this Christmas redemption down into the lives of the people of Christ the King and beyond into the lives of our family and friends. Help us to be an agent of salvation, an agent of redemption in a world that is just buckling under slavery and illusion of autonomy. Help us please. In Christ's name, amen.